0: What we want to do is we want to take a little bit of a pause as we work through Genesis, these first 11 chapters, this first section of Genesis, and we want to kind of take stock a little bit of what we've learned and to apply it before we move forward. So I'm just going to ask you this question. How are you doing? (laughs) How are you doing this morning as you, you, you gather for worship, you get yourself here? It's a question we must ask or receive from others a handful of times a day. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you making it or not making it right now? Right? And maybe it's just a thing we say, or maybe it's because at any time, everything could fall apart, you know, and you kind of need to check. How are you doing? How are you making it? Are you okay? Right? So how are you doing? This is the question. We live in an anxious age. This is an anxious time. We have reminders all over the place that it is an anxious, anxious day. And there are national and party politics. There are crises, both real and imagined, it seems, around the world. New advances, new cultural moments every day. And, you know, of course, somebody shooting people in public places, it seems. Uh, multiple times almost a week, and all of that happens at the same time yesterday it seems that i 'm celebrating our, our daughter 's seventh birthday, and these things are just kind of pushed together the living and the dying and the the, the being frightened and being secure, being anxious, all of it together and so you show up in uh, worship in a week when there were uh, all kinds of things going on in the world, including three. Uh, public mass shootings, and everything else in the span of seven days, and we check back in and we look at each other and we say, okay, so how are you doing? What we do is we look at this story we've been following in Genesis. In addition to everything else seemingly that's been going on, the author of a big-time book on Christian dating divorces his wife and checks out of Christianity. Public, teachers disavow the gospel, they walk away. What do we do with all of this and the anxiety that it provokes? I believe that it's an ancient stay, not just uh, for all the people out there, so to speak, but even for those of us inside the church who've tried to portray an unflappable, confident air. Everything's okay here. Uh, I got this. This is a... This is a a news story about five years ago that has become since a book that you may or may not have heard of. I'm just going to read a little bit from this uh, story as written. Madison Holler and a student at the University of Pennsylvania went to class, took a test, told some friends that she would meet them later that evening in the dining hall. She went to the Penn bookstore and bought gifts for her family. While she was there, her dad called and asked if she had found a therapist yet. She said, no, but don't worry, Daddy, I'll find one, she told him. But she had no intention of finding one. In fact, she was at that moment buying the items she would leave for her family at the top of a parking garage. Godiva chocolates for her dad, two necklaces for her mom, ginger snaps for her grandparents. The happiness project for her best friend with a note written inside. And a picture of herself as a young kid holding a tennis racket, Over winter break, she had told her dad that she was borrowing that picture. She needed it for something. Then after dusk settled, Madison, the track star, the Achiever, the happiest kid anyone had ever known, uh, took a running leap off the ninth level of a parking garage and ended her life. She was 19 years old. That kind of desperation, the kind of desperation that lots of people feel, uh, students feel in academia, workers feel at their jobs, the pressure to excel, The pressure, the stress to make life work. Those who are in difficult relationships, those who are in difficult places, period. Productivity and efficiency are required of you all the time. Those of you who are still in school, even. You live in communities like ours where the greatest hope is one day to be able to put a banner up that says your kid is going to Penn. Or your kid is going somewhere else. Or your kid has accomplished something. That kind of anxiety that we feel in all of those different places that you and I experience, we feel also in the church. And so as a pastor, one of the the great points of tension for me as a teacher and a preacher is to think. Have we figured out yet? How God intends for us to deal with that great anxiety of what it means to be a good Christian. What it means for us to get Christian life right And I meet many of you and have talked to many of you, I won't say who, about what it looks like to be a good Christian. And your stress about whether you're doing it right. And so you deal with that anxiety and that stress the same way we deal with it in all kinds of places. So I wanted to take a step back and think about what we've learned from Genesis 1-5 through that gives us a hint, that gives us the ability to deal with the kind of destructive anxiety, perfectionism, performance, competency stuff That so many of us experience. So we have to get this right before we move on to Noah and the flood, which is next. And I know we're all excited about Noah and the flood. Okay, and why it's a children's story. And we'll get to that later. Um, But before we get to Noah and the flood, we have to think about what it means for us as human beings to exist in this world that God has created. Because whether uh, public Christians are self-destructing or the things that are happening all around us, our churches are becoming unhealthy dens of spiritual performance and competition or gracelessness, there's a need for us to understand what it means to grow up like women and men in Jesus Christ. So I think there are many of us this morning who might be trying to white knuckle it through faith, you know, we're holding on tight, we're gripping, we're going to make it. Okay, like Churchill said, you know, when you're going through hell, just keep going. That's kind of been our way of discipleship. I'm going to make it eventually, hopefully, right? And so you're kind of pushing through. But I believe what we find as we go down that road is that we may not be pursuing Jesus, but a kind of cult of purity. Of living the perfectly curated Christian life. Where your doctrines... And your behaviors are pure, or at least purer than the person sitting next to you, or purer than anyone else knows, right? You are okay. Maddie's sister talked about why she attended the University of Pennsylvania, and she said she thought it was about the prestige of the Ivy League, right? A chance to have a perfect college experience. She wanted to try harder and harder, accomplish more and more. Before she could be at rest. That kind of. Cultic performance. The need to be pure. To be the best. To continually. Shed the impure parts of yourself. That stuff is a temptation to all of us. We try harder and harder. To pursue increasingly impressive. Feats of spiritual growth. But sometimes when we pursue them trying to be less sinful and more worshipful than the person next to us or being unbothered by bad things. You're, you used to know I used to know in my growing up in Jesus, my first experience of being a Christian was the knowledge, the understanding that if I could only make myself so unperturbed, so unable to be uh, to be pushed off. Uh, my feet by events in my life, then that meant that I was really spiritual. If I was unbothered when bad things happened, it was like a competition among the people in my church to show that you were less impacted by things than the other person next to you, right? Oh, no. Of course not. Yes, that is a mortal wound spewing out of my arm, but I'm okay. You know, because I'm just trusting. You know what I mean? That's okay. I'm just trusting, right? I mean, there is that sense in which we cannot suffer, or at least we can't suffer in a really bad way. We have to suffer in a placid way, right? This is this temptation. We descend to greater and greater depths of spirituality, trying to dig deep, right? Until like Joshua Harris or countless others, we find that we've been holding our breath too long and our faith is no longer vibrant, so we try to wring out from our spiritual practices, right? Our piety, the good things that we do. We try to wring out from it some kind of joy and assurance from God. And we find we're struggling. We're frustrated by the fact that I've been pursuing God. And at least I think I have. And I'm not any happier. What's wrong? I still struggle with doubts. A lack of assurance. What's wrong? How does this work? I just want to say, it's from the outset. You can't wring from your personal piety the stuff that you do to, to please God, the good things. These are good things, but you can't do them in order to have joy. Joy only comes from resting in Jesus Christ. So it's fine and good to be disciplined. We all should want to pursue spiritual disciplines. Don't hear me saying, Don't do good things, right? Don't worry about reading your Bible. That's not what I'm saying, right? But the idea that that can produce a less anxious Christianity, that somehow if you're just really reading your Bible more, you're not going to worry anymore. You're not going to doubt anymore. You're going to be happy now, right? That's a serious error. The idea that your religious works will produce rest, If that's your game, then you're only going to be anxious. And if you're part of a religious community that believes that the more pure your behavior and the more pure your doctrine, the happier you will be, that God's guaranteed to give you all the stuff you could possibly want right now. If you live in that community, you're never ever going to be able to admit that some days you feel like taking a running leap. And that terrifies me as a pastor. That what I want is for our people to be able to be honest about that particular struggle. Right? That struggle of belief. So as we think about this, as we examine what exactly we're being taught in Genesis 1-5, through and if we know that the the doctrinally and behaviorally pure are not the end result, that is not the end result of pursuing Jesus. The problem is, if you're doctrinally and behaviorally pure and you never ever get sick and you never need Jesus, then you'll never get Jesus. I am not bothered by the beeping watch. I just want you to know that. I'm not bothered by it. It It doesn't throw me off. You might be trying. I'm going. All right. Genesis one through five has taken great pains to show us that Christian life is not about purity. Right. I'm even going to use that in sermon illustration at some point. I'll get there. It's about hunger and thirst. It's about being nourished rightly in the garden. It was eat from the tree. Do you remember that? Hey, here's a tree. Don't eat from this one. Eat from this one. Don't eat from this one. Eat from this one. This is how you do it. Right. Depend on God. When you had Cain and Abel. It was plead the blood first, not the works of your hands first. It's not the harvest from the field first. It's the blood of the sacrifice first. That's what you need, right? We talked about that. And the truth that's lived out generation to generation that we saw in Genesis 5, it's a long story, but a short point. God's people cannot do godly things without resting in God, without taking a breath. This is what discipleship is. It's breathing. It's growth in grace. It's breathing. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Mature faith, okay? Faith that we can say pleases God, faith that's healthy. It breathes in the promise of God. This is how the respiration works, right? Like Adam and Eve at the tree of life, like God's goodness, His promise to care for them, it breathes those things in. God said, I created this world, this wonderful world, and you are going to mess it up, right? Because we're programmed to think that it can't possibly work this way, that what God most desires from us is for us to breathe in His goodness and care for us. There's no strings attached to that. It's hard for us breathe in God's promises breathe in his goodness breathe in his covenant love and then it exhales repentance that religious word that repentance that means like to turn your head like when you met somebody who really caught your attention turning your head that's like repenting okay God helps us to repent he helps us to see things differently that's the goal so you breathe in and you breathe out let me give you an example from galatians 2 20 you breathe in i am crucified with christ it's no longer i who live but christ lives in me this beautiful idea that jesus when he's crucified grabs hold of us and he says this is yours too i have won the victory right and when breathing that in you then breathe out the rest of the verse the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or John 15, which is this great passage that does incredible violence to your and my competency idols, right? It does incredible violence to it because in John 15, Jesus looks at us and says, man, you are good. Look at all the doing that you do. Look at you know, man, you're, you're well dressed. You've got yourself to church in a reasonable period of time. You are doing wonderfully. Your kids are well dressed, or at least they're dressed, right? And let me tell you that it doesn't matter a lick because what matters is for you to abide in me. He throws that word out that infuriates the competency person who says, I can't compete at abiding. Come on. How can I? Help me know how to abide better than the next person, right? Jesus, in the middle of teaching this kind of stuff, he's got his disciples saying, all right, who's going to be first place? You're going to be first place? Jesus is saying, abide in me. And people are saying, well, I abide better than that guy, clearly. Jesus is saying, abiding to you and to me in our competency, idolatry, and anxiety. He says, abide, abide, live in me. Here's what he says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. So the breathing in is God desires to be united with us. He desires for us to be a a branch on the vine. What does He breathe out? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Whoever abides in Me, And I in him, he is the one who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to me, my disciples, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. This was the message from the very beginning to Adam and Eve. I've established this world for you. I've established this tree that says you acknowledge that I love you and you love me. We have a love relationship. Eat from that tree. From the very beginning, this is God's message to his people. Now, there is a division that happens in my life uh, after age 18. And it's not just, uh, you know, all spiritual stuff. The big thing that changed in my life when I was 18 was, I mean, it was also meeting my wife, okay? But in addition to that, she's not here, so she doesn't have to hear that. But in addition to meeting my wife, the other thing that was life changing was for the first time I ate biscuits and gravy. Life changing. Who here has eaten biscuits and gravy before? Okay, okay. Who here thought when you first heard biscuits and gravy, that sounds terrible? Yeah, me too, okay? When I when I moved to college and people were like, oh, you gotta try biscuits and gravy. I thought, this sounds terrible, right? I expected that, uh, you know, I should naturally have an appetite for something that's good, but I didn't. I had to eat the biscuits and gravy and then I had to praise the Lord because that is good. White gravy deli- with like chunks of sausage inside over a nice, fresh, buttery biscuit. It's delicious. It will change your life. And when I ate it, then I desired more. I repented of my former ignorance because I had an experience of faith. That is what it looks like. Now, here's how we get this wrong. We tend to think my repentance will create faith. Okay, we tend to think I'll repent unto faith. My repentance will get me faith. If I just keep repenting, if I keep doing this stuff the right way, then I will believe, right? But instead, God says, no, 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 dwell with me, abide in me, then you will bear much fruit. Faith repents. Repentance doesn't faith, okay? And it's really hard for us to get that right. It's really hard for us to live that reality. Because we tend to really believe that God works the way everyone else does where you've got to earn your way first. And so Christians will work labor on an incredible amount of anxiety because they will look at their lives and they will say, my repentance isn't good. God must not love me the same way He loves and, 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 and welcomes someone else. So we dig into it. We try to repent more, more and more repentance so that maybe someday God will give us the faith that we want, right? Mature faith inhales. So what do we do? We need to aim at living ordinary Christian lives. With all the craziness, all the anxiety, aim at living an ordinary Christian life. Eugene Peterson wrote a book called uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It has this subtitle about discipleship in a kind of instant uh, world or something along those lines. But the idea is That in order to follow Jesus, in order to be a Christian, it really looks not so fantastic. It is a long obedience in the same direction. In other words, it's not being superstars of faith. It is taking a long road of growth, breathing in the gospel, exhaling repentance. Purity cults are self-obsessed always obsessed about progress how are you doing relative to you how's your walk going is never a way to say do you love jesus more how's that going you know are you struggling in your faith or whatever how's your walk with jesus in those purity cult worlds it is how are you doing are you doing well enough are you doing as well as i am am i doing better than you maybe right it is it is self-obsessed it's self-focused it's all about religious accomplishment Jesus says, abide with me. You know, I used to fret about this idea of eternal rewards. You remember, you know, you'd think about like in heaven, you're going to receive these crowns that are representative of works done in the body. It's biblical language. And at first you wonder and you think, boy, man, ugh. as your pastor, I really hope I'm not around you when we're you know, dishing out the crowns of reward because there might be other pastors who have nicer crowns. You know what I mean? And you might think, well, this was my pastor. Look at his crown, much smaller than that pastor, right? But... Does anybody know what we do with those crowns? We lay them down. We don't get them that long. We're not walking around saying, man, nice crown. What did you do? Right? This is not what it looks like to be present with the Lord. Instead, we take those crowns that are representative of of things done in the body, which are for good and for the kingdom. And we lay those down before the Lord. Why? Because it's all about the supremacy of Christ, not about us. Right? Right? Because it's all about abiding in Him, not making a name for ourselves. Ordinary Christian life. Ordinary Christian life. All the crowns get mixed up. You can tell your friends, yeah, that one's mine, right? That's the big one over there in the middle. Even if it's not, we won't do that. But what I'm saying is we don't need to worry and obsess about our religious performance. They aren't our identity. Rather than being self-obsessed, Rather than figuring out where we are in the Six Sigma Evangelical Christianity cult, we need to focus on biblical language of being another brick in the wall spiritually. Of being a part of the temple. Of being a part of a body. Of being a branch on a vine. This is how God describes your hard spiritual living. God loves us enough to give us this ordinary means to Christian life. Normal, everyday breathing, faith and repentance. We try to endlessly complicate it. God says, rest in me. You know why? It's because he wants our hearts, not our resumes. He wants our hearts. Your kid comes to you and they tell you, I did this. cleaned my room. I did these five things did these three things which weren't good, but I did these other five things. Don't you love me now? And we would say to our kids, you don't have to give me your resume. Don't do those three things. You don't have to give me your resume. You are beloved. You are mine. This is the only thing that deals with the anxiety that we experience as Christians. So, it's not just about a better way to live the Christian life. If we, make Christian, uh, if we make Christianity about this goal of, uh, of primarily doctrinal and behavioral purity, right? Not behaving like those people, making sure that I remember everything or that I know things better than the other people know things. It's going to create some communities that I've experienced as a pastor and just a person in ministry, period. These kind of, I just want to throw out a couple of ways that you'll recognize these purity cults by the way that they live, okay? One is, and by the way, that's some of us all the time, okay? It's not just out there. Sometimes we experience this too. You know, the person who has three Bible studies, but no non-Christian friends, you know what I mean? They are Bibling out, but they don't know anybody who needs to know Jesus, or at least they don't have any neighbors or friends with their neighbors that actually need to know the Lord. They get into public debates about doctrine, but none of them are about loving your neighbor. The worship music talks a lot about your love for God, but it never seems to get around to the things that God loves, like humility, a humble heart, justice and mercy, laboring well in your chosen field, pursuing vocation. They'll study Romans eight times before they study Lamentations once. All right. Just be honest. Who here is excited about reading the book of Lamentations? Do you go there and you say, man, I cannot wait to get into Lamentations, It sounds exciting and fun until you realize what lamentation means, right? When they're suffering, no one knows how to grieve together. You don't know how to grieve with people because that's not a part of the programming in the purity cult, right? Don't spend time grieving. One day the Lord's going to wipe away our tears, so who cares? In the meantime, just do spiritual stuff and ignore people crying. They stop you from doing what you're supposed to do, right? No! We have to grieve with people who grieve. Spirit broken, weary, doubting Christians, they stay away from the communion table until they've cleaned up spiritually. This is what purity cults do they push away the needy, they push away the broken reeds, the weary ones. And ultimately, there's more confrontation than feasting in those communities. We were created to feast, to nurture one another in faith. To love our neighbor with crazy, passionate servanthood. To eat at the Lord's table like the hungry, spiritually poor people we are. This is how God has made us. This is what we're called to do. Now, it's not just another way to live the Christian life. It isn't even about the communities that these purity cults produce. It's something more basic, actually, and significant. Here's the danger in living the purity cult life, in living by, gosh, I'm, not, I'm just not doing well enough right now. I need to, I need to do better. I'm just not good at this. I'm, I'm, I'm not okay. You know, I can't come to the Lord because I'm just too much of a sinner. The real danger here we see illustrated in another portion of Scripture that I just want to bring up that shows us kind of the natural outcome here. First Kings 18, this is one of those moments of pyrotechnics in, uh, in the Word of God where, like, if you're going to illustrate ten things that happen in the Scriptures, this is probably, like, one of them, you know? And so uh, God's prophet, Elijah, meets with all these false prophets and the evil king at Mount Carmel, and there's this little showdown about what's really what, you know, and who's who, and, you know, in this corner, you know, the prophet of Baal, in this corner, you know. I mean, it's really going crazy, and there's a big scene, and everybody's watching. And uh, we, if you know some of the story, uh, you know, Elijah calls down fire from heaven and the Lord shows that he's the real God and Baal's false because this fire descends and the the language in the Hebrew says it it licks up all the all the water on the on the sacrifice which I love that detail so anyway it consumes this whole sacrifice right but that's not the part that really catches my eye what catches my eye is what the Baal prophets do while they're trying to get God's attention they chant They dance. They do all the little religious things right. They follow the steps. And when they can't get God's attention, perfectionists, you know, they're working 80 hours a week. They're trying to do all the spiritual things. They pray, they read, they serve. They're dying a little bit inside. They keep a placid smile you know, and they sing all the happy songs, but the Baal prophets can't get God to pay attention. So here's what they do. First Kings 18, 28 to 29. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as the midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the ablation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one, it says, paid attention. The purity cult will devour its followers. The deconstructing of faith from people who felt the only option was to be the most spiritual person in the world and never struggle publicly or to let go of faith altogether. Those purity cult folks will be devoured by their cult. They will cut themselves. They will bleed themselves in order to try and get God's attention. But what we know is true is that Jesus alone bleeds for his people. Jesus stands before us as a tree that we have to eat or we'll die. The, the, the purest behavior we'll ever know, right? The purest doctrine we'll ever know is God himself, it's Jesus. Jesus, in his, in his living, in his dying, in his ascension, his resurrection, Jesus shows us that he requires from us this kind of ordinary Christian living. How so? Because when Jesus, in his, in his living ministry, he's not really impressed by our acts of devotion. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the time, Jesus is saying things like, whew, it's been a long road with you guys. Let me tell you again. Okay, here's the truth, right? Jesus says, I am the bread of life as he's ministering. Notice that. He doesn't say, I'm the recipe by which you make the bread of life and the bread maker that you have stored under, you know, the counter that you never take out. He is Eat and drink, he says. Eat and drink if you want to live. Get out of the kitchen. Get into the dining room, right? Jesus frustrates the achiever, the purity cultist, because it doesn't matter how much flair you bring to eating and drinking. It doesn't matter because you know what? It's still eating and drinking. Anybody can do that. Who brags about this? Check out my eating technique, right? Check out my drinking technique. Jesus says, look, eat and drink because you can't do anything to set yourself apart as some incredibly spiritual person. You need Eat and drink. So as you struggle, as you feel like you're being ground into the dust by the rest of your life, know that Jesus is one person who's going to tell you, no, you, you are not here to impress me. You are here to eat and drink for me. In his dying, there's frustratingly little that sinners can do. He's a spectacle, right? So you look at him. What does he do? He says, oh, you want to know how? Here's how. Look at me. Lift it up for you. It's a callback to Moses in the desert and the serpents that are riding all over the sand. And you, you take one and you put it on a staff and you raise it up and everybody's supposed to look at it and be healed. Jesus embodies that now here and he says, you want to be healed? Look at me. Know that you can't heal yourself. Look at me. And so in the middle of your frustration, in the middle of your anxiety about how you're doing in all walks of life, know that Jesus is one person who's going to tell you, just look to me to be healed. Look to me to be healed. In His ascension, we're told that He goes so that we might abide with Him, to be connected with Him, look upon it, witness it. Breathe in, breathe out. I want to sing the praises of ordinary christian living for just a minute i hear this all the time i need to get better at this read the bible more so and so it's good to do those things okay it's good we have a community bible reading schedule i wish everybody was reading along with me right let's all do that let's all read it's great let's all pray we have prayer lists in there let's do that but think about the other things that you do that are ordinary christian living All right. uh, You fall asleep praying some nearly delirious, nonsensical. I mean, if you could hear your prayers when you're falling asleep, you know, and the words that you string together. God, just uh, my friend. Something sleep, you know, um, you know, you fall asleep praying a, a nonsensical prayer for a friend. You shared something you're pretty sure is in the book of James or something with someone who was hurting. You reconciled with a friend because you went to eat together and you dominated the conversation with stories, hilarious stories about your own life while they were hurting. So you asked forgiveness. You got the kids to church today even though you didn't like doing it. Not because it's easy and you're tired. No one seems to know where their shoes are. It's the way. Those of you who don't have children or you're around people with children, that's the big battle, finding shoes. Um, God put you in a position, you know, to, to provide for your family and so you, you work. Or to provide for your future family so you work. Provide for yourself. Provide to be generous to people around you so you work. This is ordinary Christian living. This is ordinary. It's exactly where, the God, where God has called you. To be a part of the community of the kingdom. To eat and drink His gospel together. To do the ordinary stuff of life with other people. Let me give you some application points here. Here's one. Take some time this week to catalog what you know about God's faithful love and care for you. You know, kind of build an ecosystem, build, uh, build, kind of a, a place that provides oxygen for you, for for faith and repentance. Make it a team exercise with a friend, even. Right? Resist the temptation to turn this into doctrinal analysis. Does anybody know what a slinky is, or am I just talking to myself right now? Oh, thank goodness. Don't strengthen. Don't don't strengthen. Or I'm sorry. Don't straighten. Should say the slinky. All right, don't be don't say, well, let's straighten this thing out. No, it should be amazing. It should be a blessing. It should be fun. It shouldn't be a doctrinal exercise. Think about Jesus. Think about how he loves you. Catalog the ways. Dive into that. Here's two. Uh, This is another quote from Eugene Peterson, and I just give it to you as an as an application. This is how he looks at his dizzying heights of discipleship. He says, yet I decide every day to set aside what I can do best and attempt what I do very clumsily. I open myself to the frustrations and failures of loving, daring to believe that falling in love is better than succeeding in pride. That's that long obedience in the same direction. If you want to read that book, it's a great book. That's what he says, right? It's better to clumsily, to dare to believe than to succeed in pride. The third is grieve with someone this week. Don't tell them it's an assignment. But, you know, you should know somebody in your life who's struggling, and really, just do the inefficient Christian living, ordinary living thing of being a blessing to somebody who's hurting. It is good for training you up in mature Christian living to have to deal with suffering people. Right? So, Here's where we kind of want to end. If we want pure doctrine and behavior, and we should want good doctrine and behavior, it's going to be purified not by our love for God, but the love of God for us. Okay? It's a very important difference. Not by our love for God do we get to pure doctrine and pure behavior but by God's love for us. Sinclair Ferguson, great preacher, Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. If we speak of the cross of Christ as the cause of the love of the Father, we imply that behind the cross and apart from it, He may not actually love us at all. He needs to be paid a ransom price in order to love us. But if it has required the death of Christ to persuade Him to love us, Father, if I die, will You begin to love them? How can we ever be sure that the Father himself loves us deep down with an everlasting love? True, the Father does not love us because we are sinners. Of course not. But he does love us even though we are sinners. He loved us before Christ died for us. It is because he loves us that Christ died for us. The point of greatest doctrinal purity is this. You are the beloved of God. You are the beloved. You can never be any more or any less. Those of you, if you are in Christ, you can never be any more or any less than God's own beloved daughter, God's own beloved son. Let's pray.